You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth And we will praise Jesus' name We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it Although it don't bring much fame Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it But God's word will always stand true Tried in the fire, still good in this hour. Hello, friends and faithful listeners. It's time for the Pot King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we studied the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news in light of Scripture, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Monday, May the 22nd, episode number 117, The Great White Throne Judgment, Revelation 20 and 6 through 21 and 1. In our last study, we did our seventh Q&A with Brother Chris Lee. We explained two portions of Scripture that a couple of our listeners have found hard to understand, and we answered several other questions as well. We talked about whether one gives an account for things done after they're saved, what it meant for Peter to be converted, who our worship services are designed for, what it means to cast our pearls before the swine, and then we finished with a question from a child regarding dragons. We believe you will find this episode very informative. In today's episode, we take up where we left off last week. We are given a more thorough explanation of the 1,000-year period in the first resurrection. We learned that Satan will be loosed after this 1,000-year period, and he goes forward to deceive the nations. We study about the great white throne judgment, how the sea gives up her dead, and how death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. All of this leads up to John seeing the new heaven and the new earth, because the former things are passed away. This is a very encouraging episode, so go ahead and listen to it today. And now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today. I'll turn it to the host of our podcast, Brother Donnie King. Well, if we're to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, how do you reckon we should enter into a podcast episode? I think that we ought to at least enter it with some thankfulness in our heart. And I want to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in, because without you, it would be a waste of time for us to be doing this if no one would listen. But finally, after all of this time, we're getting down near the end of the book of Revelation. Yeah, I guess I've been waiting for you to drag this into the holidays. Well, technically, next Monday is a holiday, so you're still right about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm shocked we haven't received some feedback from people who are getting weary with this eternal study. Eternal study? Now, that's a pretty <laughs> nasty dig right there. <laughs> no, seriously, this has been a good study, even though it has lasted twice as long as I originally thought it would. Well, I have to admit that it has lasted longer than I first thought it would as well, but I don't think it would be fair to our listeners to rush through some of this. Yeah, you have a point there. At least today's topic should be an attention grabber. If the judgment doesn't get your attention, something's wrong with you. Well, in our society we live, I, I doubt the judgment is a topic many people would look forward to. You're probably right, but either way, we're all headed for the judgment. Amen. We sure are. And I don't want to be surprised when I stand before the Lord. Me either. Well, I reckon I should go ahead and begin reading some of these verses. Let's read Revelation 20, verses 6 through 10. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. 
And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. After telling us that the rest of the dead lived not until the thousand years were finished, we learn that this is called the first resurrection. Well, how many resurrections are there? There's two more that is to come that really, really matter. The second resurrection is described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 15, which we'll be getting to here in a few minutes. So I'm going to forbear on reading that now. But there's a couple of other verses that mention this second resurrection as well. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4 and 16 and Luke 14 and 14. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 16 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Luke 14 and 14, And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. So the first resurrection is the resurrection of the just, and the second resurrection is for the unjust? That's correct. Here in verse 6, we find John's fifth beatitude in this book. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. Now that saying reminds me of Revelation 14 and 13 a little bit. Back in Revelation 14 and 13, John says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. That's definitely different from the way we think today. Blessed are the dead. That's true. But this is just getting us ready for verse 14 here in chapter 20, which topic has already been mentioned in Revelation 2 and 11, and it will be mentioned again in Revelation 21 and 8. Let me read you those. Revelation 2 and 11 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Revelation 21 and 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You know, this takes my mind back several years right there. Oh, yeah? How so? Well, down south, it was a very common thing for people to be talking about the end times. And they would ask each other which resurrection they wanted to go in. And every one of them would answer the first resurrection. Yeah, I remember that well. I was just a teenager back then when it was talked about so often, and they would always ask, what resurrection do you want to go in? Well, everybody wanted to go in the first one, and there were some guys that believed in seven resurrections, so I wonder what the other six was. (laughs) Anyway, John says that those who take part in the first resurrection will be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. Now, to me, This is another connection back to the book of Exodus. Are you serious? I thought you'd finally dropped all those connections between Exodus and Revelation. I only dropped out of it because there wasn't any connections in some of what we read, but now we're back to another connection point. And it may be one of the last points, I'll say that. I want to read you a place in Exodus 19. I want you to see this, and then I want you to see Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, and the verse that we're looking at right now, Revelation 20 and verse 6. 
Exodus 19 and 6 says, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, Revelation 1 and 6 says, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5 and 10 says, And hath made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. The verse we see here in Revelation 20 and 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with them a thousand years. I find at least four points of connection between these verses. Number one, God has always desired a kingdom of priests. Why do you think that is? Well, priests are mediators. And what they do is they bring man to God and they bring God to man. God's always desired for people to help other people find him. Number two, in the millennial, they will be as kings and they will reign for a thousand years. The third thing I see here is the phrases called unto God, called unto me, called unto God in Christ. They're all connected. The fourth thing is God's plan has always been to have a holy nation and for his people to reign with him. So this is basically a foreshadow of what heaven is and its real purpose, isn't it? That's exactly what it is. John took what the Lord told Moses in Exodus, and he used it in at least three different places here in the book of Revelation. It appears that he really wanted us to understand how the Lord desires this. And even more than John wanting us to know, the spirit who gave this word wanted us to know. Now, jumping into verse 7 of Revelation 20, we're told that after being bound for a thousand years, the devil is loosed out of his prison, which has been the bottomless pit. I know I said something about this last week, but I still don't understand why the devil has to be loosed after the thousand years. I understand that. And at this point, he's going out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth. And it specifically mentions Gog and Magog to gather them together for another battle. Well, all this is pretty confusing to me. Yeah, and one thing that makes it so confusing is because all of this is way off in the future. It's at least a thousand years from where we are right now. This battle, is it Armageddon? You know, this is not the battle of Armageddon. A lot of people think that it is, but it's another battle. And let me point this out while we're here. Interestingly enough, most of your amillennialists believe that this is the same battle as Armageddon, and all of the battles are already over and done with. It's in the past. Postmillennialists believe that this is when Jesus finally returns and everything is destroyed, everything's ended all at the same time. Now, premillennialists believe it in the order that I have just taught it in. Uh, So you just gave your position away this time. Well, I figured it was probably obvious to most of our listening audience by now, but that is the view that I lean the most towards. Now, I can be proven wrong, but you got about a thousand years before you could prove me wrong, maybe. (laughs) Now, it says that the number of these people are as the sand of the seashore innumerable. You know, all this raises more questions for me than it gives answers. What do you mean by that? Well, the only ones on the earth in the millennial reign are those who overcome, right? Yeah, well, I guess. Well, what has Gog and Magog got to do with any of this? Well, now this was prophesied about way back in Ezekiel chapters, I think, 38 and 39. What nations will the devil deceive? Nearly everyone I've ever heard teach concerning Gog and Magog believe them to be China and Russia. So if this is true, how did they go through the millennium? (laughs) Well, there's a lot of things that I could say right here. I don't want to get bogged down right here, but I do feel like I need to talk about this for a moment. 
how did China and Russia get through the millennial reign if it's mainly going to be all the redeemed that's that's there or those who came through great tribulation? First off, let me point out something here. Gog is neither China nor Russia. I can prove you that by the Bible. Go to Ezekiel chapter 38, read verse 3. Gog is a prince. He's the prince of Meshach and Tubal. So he is not a nation. Everybody talks about Gog and Magog being nations. Gog is the prince over Magog. (laughs) He's the leader of Magog. So when it's talking about Gog and Magog, it's talking about the leader in his nation. It's only one nation. And as for the rest of it, I don't really have any good answers for some of the questions you just asked, but I have wondered them as well. Okay. What nations will the devil deceive? Why is he allowed to do this all over again? You got me. And if you get it figured out, let me know, because this is one of those things that has puzzled me for years as well. Jumping down into verse nine, it almost sounds as if the millennial reign is based out of Jerusalem. And then all of the nations come together to fight with what sounds like Jerusalem again. That makes sense for what else would be known as the beloved city. Yes. And instead of Jesus destroying them with the brightness of his coming and the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, we see that fire falls from God out of heaven and destroys them. Where did these nations come from? I thought total destruction had come upon the earth. These are the people who were in the millennial reign somehow, and they came through it. I I don't really understand. This is one of those confusing portions of Scripture where there's very little information given to satisfy my mind anyway. Now, it's at this point in verse 10, though, that we do see that the devil is cast into the lake of fire with the false prophet and the beast, and he'll be tormented day and night forever. Now, that's more like it. Yes, let's go into Revelation 20, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 15 at this point, finish chapter 20. And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's at this point that John begins to describe the great white throne judgment in verse 11. There's someone seated on the great white throne, and it is from his face that the earth and heaven fled away from for there was no place found for them. Does that last phrase give us a little idea of what their judgment is? There was no place found for them. I believe that's exactly what it's saying. In verse 12, John saw the dead, both small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. At this point, the book of life was open, and the dead were judged by the things found written in the books and according to their works, which is similar back to Daniel 7 and 10. Daniel says a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were open. You know, some people believe this is only sinners who are being judged here. True, but others believe that everyone shall appear before the great white throne judgment because everyone shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Some people say that this is the same judgment, just called different things. So what does the scripture say about this thought? Well, I'm going to read you from three different places, and I think that we'll get an idea by the time we get to the end of this. In these passages, we see three definite statements regarding how the judgment will unfold. Daniel 12 and 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, 
and some to shame and everlasting contempt. John 5 and 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Acts 24 and 15. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. So are these scriptures saying everyone will face the judgment? I believe that they will, but I believe there's a distinction between the judgment of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked. Therefore, if there's a difference in the judgment of them, there could be two separate judgments, the judgment seat of Christ and the white throne judgment. The main difference is that the believers will have the blood of Christ to atone for their sins, of which will be recorded in the books that are open. The unbelievers will not have that testimony. That's why they will receive such a bad judgment. John goes on to say that the sea, death, and hell all gave up the dead that they had previously held. That reminds me of Philippians 2 and 10, which says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, which could mean the sea. This is also one of the few instances where hell could possibly be a reference to the grave. (laughs) Wait a minute now. You haven't gone Jehovah Witness, have you? No, but I say this because the Greek word Hades is also known as the place where souls are kept until the judgment. So it could be talking about they're held within the grave, within that place of the unknown, or they could be in the place of hell, which is the holding place itself until people stand before God. Here we see that death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire, which confirms what the Bible teaches concerning death as well. Let me read you 1 Corinthians 15, 26 and 15 and 54. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Revelation 21 and 4 reminds us that God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes and there shall be no more death. That right there in itself is glorious. The last enemy of man to be defeated will be death then. Yes. Death and hell will spend eternity in the lake of fire with the dragon, with the beast, and with the false prophet. That's something I haven't ever given any thought to, but I sure like it. Yes, once again, we're told that this is the second death and that this death has no power over those who take part in the first resurrection back in verse 6. Why is this referred to as the second death? This is because these people have already died physically. They were already dead, but now they're dying spiritually forever and ever. Ending the chapter here at verse 15, we see that everyone else who was lost will be cast into the lake of fire along with the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, death, and hell. Can you imagine spending eternity with this group? I have absolutely no intention of spending five minutes there, much less spending all of eternity there. As we enter into chapter 21, I don't think we'll get past verse 1 today. And so I want to read that verse, and then we're going to see the culmination of many events wrapping up, many new things beginning to take place. So let me read that verse to you. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. John said that he saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first ones were passed away. That means they were destroyed or done away with, doesn't it? It does, and that's the way that most everybody thinks of it. But I want to throw something else at you for just a moment. Passed away is also a term for death. If I were to tell you, hey, Aunt Mary passed away, you wouldn't think I was telling you she was destroyed, would you? I find it interesting that John spoke of the first heaven and the first earth as dying, 
and then a new heaven and a new earth spring into being. To me, this is in keeping with the traditional belief that the earth will be destroyed and burnt with fire, and that is the way it dies. So technically, there is destruction, destroying going on, but it is a passing away, is a dying. As we remember from 2 Peter 3 and 10, the earth and its works will be burned up. And we also saw this in Revelation 20 and 9. It appears that we can see when this might be taking place. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the element shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. There are several other verses that describe this too, isn't there? There is. There really is. Nahum 1 and 5 and Matthew 24 mentions it. Hebrews chapter 1, I believe it's verses 11 and 12. Said that. Let, me, let me find these real quickly. And here's Nahum 1 and 5. The mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. In Matthew 24, let me pull it up. It's verse 35 that I'm looking for. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now, going over to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it's speaking of the heavens and the earth as well. They shall perish but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doeth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. As we know from the scriptures, as soon as this judgment upon the earth is unleashed, the judgment will take place as we saw in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Hey, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I believe that is a powerful point. Yes, soon as judgment on earth is over, judgment in heaven begins. This is why Isaiah 65 and 17, Isaiah 66 and 22, and 2 Peter 3 and 13 teaches us to look forward to the new heaven and to the new earth that God will give unto us. Let me read you those three passages quickly. Isaiah 65 and 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Isaiah 66 and 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Second Peter 3 and 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. John seems to understand the new heaven and the new earth in the same way that Paul understood how our physical bodies will be transformed through the resurrection. Do you really think there is a connection to these things? I absolutely do. When you think about it, 1 Corinthians 15 deals with this a lot. Let, let's go in and look at verses 42, 43, and 44, and I believe it's going to make a lot of sense to you. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. I got to ask you this. Why did John include the part about there being no more sea? There's a lot of theories about this. One main theory is what prevails, but I got a couple of things I want to point out. When John states that there is no more sea, most of us think back to the conditions that he experienced while he was on the Isle of Patmos, which might be all that he means here. That may be totally it, that he was seeing the waters around him every day. And now that he gets to go to heaven, there is no more sea, no more hindrance, no more things that he has to look at every day to remind him of his situation. No more sea. That's good in itself. But what if I told you that I believe that it might go deeper than this? I personally think that John had more in mind than a selfish appreciation of the way things come to pass at the end. Wow. I never thought about it as being selfish before, but 
I do see what you're saying. Well, I'm going to show you what I believe that he may have been thinking about. Back in Genesis 1 and 2 and Psalm 65 and 7, you get a good idea of what the sea represented to people like John, along with the other Jews in that day. All right, Genesis 1 and 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The deep is the waters, as you know. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. When it says it was without form and void, it means chaos. Everything was in total and utter chaos, and it was there on the waters. Psalm 65 and 7 says, Which stilleth the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of all the people. Now, this is a picture of chaos, and it goes back to the waters, goes back to the waves, and it goes back to the seas. The chaos of the people was thought by the ancient peoples to have come from the waters of chaos. So John may have been thinking back to Genesis 1 and 2 to some of the other scriptures that speak of the waters and lets us know that the earth was without form and void. That means that there was chaos until the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters or the deep. It could be John was seeing a time when all chaos was finally eliminated. We've got rid of the devil now. We've got rid of death, hell, and the grave. We've got rid of the false prophet and the beast. All chaos that had been is gone. With no devil, there's no sin. With no sin, there's no sickness, no disease, no trouble, no turmoil. It could be that John was saying that when he said, and there was no more sea. The psalmist told about God stills the seas. The noise of the waves, he quietens down. The tumult of the people God takes care of. At this point in history, all chaos, whether in the literal sea or in the sea of people, will have been abolished forever. That's absolutely true. And I believe that the context of what we're reading here in Revelation 21 and 1, the context bears this out. When you look at what John was used to seeing, turmoil and chaos, the Jews being persecuted, any believer of Christ facing persecution from the Jews, the Jews had always faced persecution just as a nation because they were the people of God. Now the Christians have arisen out of this, and we see that they're being persecuted not only by the Gentiles, but by the Jews as well. There's nothing but chaos all around John. Among the churches, there was infighting among them. There was trouble even in the churches. And John saw a point in time when all chaos and all sea was gone. To me, that gives us hope right here of looking for a brighter day, a brighter tomorrow. And can you imagine what it'll be like to live in a place where there is no more sea? where there is no more turmoil, where there is no more chaos, where there is no more death, where there is no more dying, where there is no more devil, where there is no more troubles, no more sickness, no more disease. What a day that will be. All right, Brother Donnie, I know we've been here for a little bit today, but we got a question come in. I know you look forward to them. I most certainly do. What's our question today? All right. Is Paul preaching the Calvinistic doctrine in Romans chapter 9, verses 15 through 23? What is he saying here? (laughs) Oh, gracious. I thought we had time for this. Maybe next week we'll have time for a question. (laughs) This right here has been one of those things that has caused so much consternation and debate among Christian people for years. The passage that is referring to Romans 9, 15 through 23 is not an easy passage. It's pretty heavy. There's a lot of stuff within it. Going back to the original email, let me read you just a little more of what the brother said that sent the question. He says, I apologize in advance, as I know this is a rather complex question. 
Brother, that's an understatement. <laughs> he said, my question is regarding Romans 9, 15 through 23. It really and truly seems like Paul is preaching a Calvinistic doctrine here. Now, I don't feel like God sat in heaven and said, this one can go to heaven and this one's going to hell. Nor do I believe that people are stuck because God said this and handpicked them. God made it so everyone can receive salvation. Now, this is still all what the brother said in the email. So why does it seem like Paul is saying here that God handpicks vessels unto destruction and vessels unto honor? Now, in answering the question, I want to go to Romans chapter 9, verse 15. I want to read through some of this down through 23, give you an idea of what the brother's referencing right here. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that sheweth mercy. So in other words, here's the sovereignty of God at work. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might shew my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doeth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? In other words, if God is controlling the will of men, why does God find fault in them? How can God send them to hell if God is making them do what they're doing? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? These are good questions, and they are worthy of looking at. What if God, willing to shew his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? That phrase right there makes people think that this means God created them to be destroyed. They were created a vessel of wrath. Verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Sounds like God created some for glory and some for destruction. This is the Calvinistic part of the teaching that was mentioned here. I got several things I want to say, and I want to do it in a quick amount of time to keep from dragging this out. Number one, we know that Paul cannot be teaching a Calvinistic doctrine right here. Why? Because we know that Paul's an Arminian? No, because Paul wrote this at least 1,500 years before John Calvin lived. <laughs> There was no way Paul could be teaching a Calvinistic doctrine. Paul was teaching, and the Calvinists based some of their teaching from what Paul said. That does not make Paul a Calvinist. Actually, it makes those who believe Calvinism a Pauline believer. <laughs> okay, now am I saying that the Calvinists are right? No. What I am saying is that Paul is not leaning towards Calvinism, neither is he leaning towards Arminianism. Because of the same reason, Paul lived hundreds of years before either of these men lived. They built their systems off of scriptures Paul wrote. Paul didn't make his belief system off of Calvin or Arminius. Paul is teaching biblical doctrine here, and we tend to place things in a particular camp, and we associate things with those certain groups. Well, that sounds Arminian to me. Well, that sounds Calvinistic to me. How about let's read the Bible through the filter of the Spirit and see what Paul really is saying without trying to blend it through Calvinism or Arminianism. There wasn't 700 denominations back in Paul's day. We need to read the Bible without the filter of a dogma or a creed in mind, without a certain group in mind, because Paul wasn't writing this to satisfy the Baptists or the holiness people. Paul was writing the Bible according to what the Spirit gave him. Neither was there any of the teachings that we're familiar with today, such as the pre, the mid, the post, the Calvinist, the Arminian, the Protestant, the Catholic, the Reformed, the Pentecost. There was none of that back then. What there was was Jews, Gentiles, and then the believers. Three groups. Three groups. Having said this, I'm going to proceed to answer the question now. 
Since I've established that this is not a Calvinistic doctrine, what Paul was doing was asking questions to stir our minds to think about how we truly believe God works with men. How sovereign is God? Does man hold any responsibility? Absolutely. So some people say, well, what about verse 22? What if God, willing to shew his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much longsuffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Okay, let me blow your mind right here. This is not Paul telling us something. This is Paul asking a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question would be, let me ask you this. What if Russia bombed America next week and the world came to an end in a couple of years? That's a rhetorical question. It's something that hasn't happened. But there's a possibility that it might or possibly could happen. Russia could possibly bomb us. The world could come to an end in a few years. But that doesn't mean it's going to, and it doesn't mean it should be taught as doctrine. Paul asked a what-if question. What-if questions are rhetorical questions. What if God? In other words, imagine that it could be this way. What if God did it this way? What could you do? Could you change one thing if God did that? If God chose to send somebody to hell, can you stop him? If God chose to save somebody, can you stop him? Absolutely not. So Paul is showing man's limitation by looking at God's sovereignty. He's not saying God is going to make you go to hell, and he's not saying God's going to make you go to heaven, but God holds the supreme rights of everything in his hands. He's saying, how can the clay argue with the potter? You can't. What we should walk away with from this is not that Paul was Calvinist. What we should walk away from this is that God has all power in heaven and in earth. God is a sovereign being, and it's up to him to choose how he works and how he deals with people. Why he hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, why did he? Pharaoh hardened it the first five times. After that, God said, if that's what you want, God hardened his heart the last five times. If you want to be stubborn, you want to be obstinate, you want to be rebellious, I'll seal your fate where you'll always be that way. Pharaoh didn't have to harden his heart the first five times. But God saw that Pharaoh's heart would not change, so he solidified Pharaoh's heart by hardening it himself. And then Pharaoh had to do what he always set out to do. There was no backing up. Pharaoh had to do what he wanted to do. When the children of Israel, when they said they wanted meat, God gave them meat, but it was at the cost of their own souls. When you decide you want to do what you want to do and you don't care what God says, God could allow you to have exactly what you want, but you don't want that. If you determine, I'm going to leave church and I ain't ever coming back, God can make sure that that happens the way you want it to, even though you really don't want it to happen. You know why? Because God is sovereign and he holds that power. He could be merciful and who could complain if God says, hey, he's cursed my name. He's walked out on me, but I'm going to bring him back and save him. God could do that or he could let you go. That's God's prerogative, not man's. So therefore, God is full of mercy, but yet God is also a God of judgment. We must realize you can't play games with God. We need to be serious with him at all times. Friends, remember, if you have a Bible question regarding how news or current events or things going on in our culture are connected to Scripture, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode today sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come back next Friday, May the 26th, for special edition number 83, Asterisk, the Queen of Heaven. For me, this I know, will it change my heart all around? Put my feet back on the ground, got along. Now for heaven, I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. 
to that land where the milk and honey flow. Oh, I've heard of such a place. I can't go there by God's grace. Never seen it, but I know I want to go.